I'm assuming that most of us came in here feeling like we have empty pockets or nearly empty, that we're lacking something, and that lack in us leaves a deep soul ache. God has withheld something, something that would be to us an endless comfort. And I don't necessarily mean money, but I do mean treasure. That thing, whatever it is, that would make you feel full, that thing, whatever it is, that would make you feel like you need nothing else, there would be no more longing, no more yearning, no more complaining or grumbling or scheming or scraping, that thing that would make your heart sigh and feel like it could stop searching. But we know we're not supposed to be haunted by desires like this. And so week after week, church tends to feel to us more like a meeting of our local chapter of Discontents Anonymous. And it comes off like a typical support group meeting. Milling around and drinking burnt coffee, eating supermarket donuts, wearing adhesive name tags with our names scrawled out in magic marker. And we don't even know why we're here. Nobody really expects any of this to work. Nobody expects that the discontentment will be pushed away. But we still go through the motions. We all take our turns and someone stands up and says, Hi, my name is Walter and I'm discontent. And on cue we all say, Hi, Walter. And Walter tells us of his emptiness and what it feels like and what he believes would fill it. And we think to ourselves, you don't know the half of it, Walter. Try living with my heart. And someone else, someone who's been at this much longer, stands up and gives coping strategies. Mostly, they're attempts to talk us out of our sin. Oh, you don't want that. You don't need that. You should be happy with what you have. But we all know the truth of it. Sunday school answers get you nowhere but deeper in your unbelief. And then Jesus walks into the room with these two parables in his pockets. And he promises to load you up with them too. If you have ears to hear. Matthew is the only gospel that includes the treasure parables. We've read two of them. There are actually three. The third is just... Five verses beyond where we stopped reading this morning. But Matthew stacks two of the three on top of each other. And they're not drastically different. In fact, they're so similar that you could almost call it redundant of Jesus to tell these two treasure parables in a row. I mean, he could have been more inventive. He could have been more creative. Told us something a little bit more spectacular. Give us some fireworks, Jesus. It seems lazy and uninteresting to say the same thing over. But I think it's an American arrogance that we assume and believe we're always deserving of new material. Maybe it's a technological arrogance that makes us feel we always have to have something current, something up to the minute, breaking news. Our criticism of two very similar parables set back to back shows that we don't know how to read the Bible. There are are two possible pieces to take away from these parables set side by side. One way of seeing their placement together would be that Jesus is emphasizing something. Repetition in the Bible is emphasis, not unimportance. 
It's Jesus or the gospel writers or the biblical writers saying, you didn't hear it the first time, I'm sure, so we're going to say it again. This time, lean in close and pay attention. Or the other way to see the placement of these two parables is that they are similar, but actually there are subtly significant differences that open to us new layers of meaning. So in the first parable, a man finds a treasure hidden in a field. The man is no one special, no distinguishing characteristics or features. He has no position to speak of. He's just an ordinary guy. So ordinary, in fact, that this finding of the treasure is a change in his fortunes. This is going to drastically change his world. The treasure, on the other hand, is significant. It's of great value and it belongs to someone else and that's why it's hidden. And the man, knowing what he's found, has to have it beyond dispute, beyond litigation. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers doesn't work here. He'll have to make it legal. So he sets off to obtain the rights of the treasure by purchasing the field. And the scenario isn't as far-fetched as it may seem. It actually happens all the time. One year ago, almost to the day, a man was combing a field outside London, England with a metal detector and he picked up a strange singing signal and he stopped and dug down and he pulled out a lump of clay and kneading through it, he found a small copper coin about the size of a fingernail with the portrait of a Roman emperor stamped into it and the name Marcus Aurelius scrawled around the edge. And they dated it to the third century, much later. So on his next pull through the earth, he dug out 20 more coins, and then he discovered there was some kind of a jar beneath all of this. And when the whole treasure was excavated, the jar itself weighed 350 pounds, there were so many coins in it. And the coins numbered, at 52,500 of them in total, and the whole trove was worth 5 million. Now, the laws are different now. If you find a treasure like that, you can't just dig it up and keep it for yourself. Not even if you own the field. You have to turn it over to the authorities, to the ministries of antiquity that take care of things like this. The the laws now see it as a matter of history and science and culture, and it's not a bump in your financial situation. It's something to be exhibited in a museum. It's not an early retirement for you, in other words. But in the world of the parable, before there were such laws, if you found this treasure, you'd look over your shoulder to make sure that no one had seen And then you'd rebury the hole, maybe make a few passes through the field, pretending to be looking for something and coming up empty, just in case someone was watching from a corner of the field somewhere. And then you head down to the county clerk's office, sweaty and shaky with adrenaline, trying to act composed, and you'd ask, who owns the field just outside of town? And what's the fair market value of it? And then you call your neighbor who's a real estate agent to make an offer on the piece of land. And the owner 
says he doesn't have any intention of parting with it. It doesn't have any value for him, but it's been in his family for generations. So you offer to pay double what it's worth because it's going to come back to you in spades. And before the ink is dried on the deed, you run to the tool shed and you pull out a shovel and you go to the refrigerator and take out the bottle of champagne that's been in the back on the top shelf for far too long and you run clanking all the way back to the field to pull coins out of the hole and throw them in the air. When Jesus says the kingdom is like a treasure, we get that part. But when he says it's hidden, that part not so much. Remember, Matthew is the only gospel with the treasure parables. Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospel writers. His editorial and theological emphasis is Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke of For centuries and millennia, Jesus is the subject of all the Old Testament prophecies. He's the coming one. He's the one sent by God. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the King of the kingdom. The kingdom is is His to bring, and the kingdom is His to bring you into, Matthew is saying. And He's here in your midst, preaching the good news of sinners forgiven and the unrighteous accepted, and the guilty justified, and the ruined restored, and the lost found, and the filthy washed clean. And he healed your sicknesses to show that he can heal all the effects of sin that you wear in your bodies. And he cast out demons to show his power over all imprisoning powers to bring you out of spiritual captivity and blindness into freedom and knowing and belonging. But you didn't recognize him as Savior, Matthew's saying. He was hidden before your eyes, so entirely public. Everywhere he went, the crowds swarmed him. And everywhere he went, the Pharisees and scribes came out to challenge him and discredit him. He was so public, and yet you missed him. How could you not see him? What would make the people, both Jews and Romans, unable to see Jesus for who he is? What buried him? What was hiding him? And Matthew's answer is, the cross. A scandalous public hanging. The worthy aren't nailed up to death on crosses. The unworthy are. And if you were left to dangle between the arms of a cross, to be drained of life, you deserved it. You were not misunderstood and you were not to be pitied. You were rejected and obscene. For the Jews... Crucified Jesus is an offense. For the Romans, crucified Jesus is a criminal and a disgrace. But for Matthew, for Matthew the gospel writer, Jesus is a deliberate sacrifice. Jesus is the Passover. With the cross, Jesus was casting himself perfectly to be our scandal and our curse and our offense in a dying body. So Jesus is the expiring of our guilt and our shame and our fear. On the cross, 
His breath falling short is the dying gasp of the power of our sin. On the cross, He is the last gasp of our sin. And He is mercy and love and forgiveness. And He is reaching past our suffering and reaching through judgment and reaching beyond irretrievable loss to take us back. The unseen treasure buried right under our noses is a crucified Savior hidden to so many that for those who stumble on the profane, earthy, grubby, dirt under your fingernails, splendor of the thing, he's absolutely priceless. Again, the kingdom is like, Jesus goes on. And the next parable isn't about us, at least not in the same way. We can see ourselves as the pedestrian, the townie kicking through the field and kicking up a pot of gold. That analogy works. But in the second parable, we're dealing with a different class of person altogether. This man is a specialist. The kingdom is like this, Jesus says. It's like a merchant a dealer in pearls, in search of the finest specimens. Now, I have a dreamy memory from a childhood vacation. My family was making its way through Florida, and we stopped off at a botanical garden, and there was a pavilion, this sort of open-aired porch. And right in the middle of the decking, there was a, a circular wall of stone and rocks that had been built. And beneath the wall, inside the wall, cut down into the earth, was a lagoon about 20 feet deep, filled with crystal clear water. It must have been spring-fed. And you'd walk up to the wall where young girls in wetsuits were perched. And you'd hand a girl a $5 bill. And she'd pull a diver's mask over her eyes and take a knife out of an ankle sheath and slip from the wall into the water and sink to the bottom and cut an oyster from its bed and swim up from the crystalline depths to where you were waiting on the wall. And she'd sputter out her lung full of used up air and gulp down a new one and cut your oyster open to see if it had turned a grain of sand into a pearl. My father paid a girl to pluck an oyster off the bottom for my mother. And when everyone else around us was turning up empty, in between the half shells of our oyster, there was a little milky gem. And I thought we were rich. Probably wasn't even worth the $5 we paid for it. And this merchant isn't interested in pearls like that. This merchant has tubs of throwaway pearls in his shop or back in his booth at the marketplace. He's been at the trade for years and he's good at what he does. He's an expert, but he's bored. And he wants more. He wants the pearl that must be out there, the pearl that no one's found, the pearl of legend, the pearl that you don't simply stumble on every day. 
He has a trained eye and refined taste. He's made himself a hunter and a collector. This dealer, when he finds the right pearl of of a certain size and, and the perfect shape and the right luster, he knows how to value and appraise it. So he travels to the port cities and he goes down to the docks and he asks among the pearl divers where they tie up their skiffs, has anyone brought up from the bottom anything unusual? That's all he asks. He doesn't have to ask anymore. He knows that if anyone has found a unique trophy, that question will flush it out. And one of the divers overhears the merchant asking around. And he has wrapped in a piece of soft leather tucked at the bottom of a tackle box under a coil of rope and a flask of water and an extra knife just in case. He has in that piece of leather a pearl the size of a fist. But he's been afraid to take it to the dealers in town because they're swindlers. The way this dealer is asking around, though, he'll know how to put the right price on it. Or maybe it's another merchant who hears... Our merchant asking around the market in the center of town. And he brings this merchant into a shop, into a back room. And there on a velvety pillow under glass is the great pearl. And he says, I don't show this to the regular customers. They don't have the means for it. And they're not in the market for it. Or a servant girl overhears our traveling merchant and she takes him up the hill to meet her mistress, a society dame who's fallen on hard times. Inflation, bad investment, disappointing divorce settlement, doesn't matter. She has to sell some things off. And she has the great pearl. It was an anniversary gift from her third husband anyway. And though the pearl has value, her third husband was worthless. So she's happy to let it go. And without haggling, he pays her price. Well, the parables don't give any backstory like that. But the point of the parable is simple. It doesn't matter how the merchant found it or where he found it. The point is, it wasn't easy to find. And what he finds has no equal. And it takes a specialist to know what he has and how to truly value it. So you understand this parable now, right? Of course you do. You just don't realize you do. It's about exactly the same thing from the other vantage point. This parable is a glimpse of the cross from the perspective of Jesus. Jesus is the traveling merchant. And he sells off his entire inventory for one priceless pearl. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and before His incarnation, before His birth and His residence on earth, He's residing with the Father and the Spirit in the heavenly courts, and He's glorious. He lacks nothing. But there's more glory to be had. There's there's sin to be atoned for, and death to be dealt with. 
Death needs to have its fangs snapped off and its neck broken. And there's judgment to be turned into adoption and grace over faked and failed performances and tears turned to laughter and weeping to hymns and shouts. And all the treasure the traveling merchant is searching for is loaded into a cross. You get it? You get the way the parables work together. Your jackpot, the hidden treasure that spills out at your feet, is the cross that sets you free. And Christ's great pearl is the glory and unearthly beauty that His cross works in you. The gospel is the treasure that empties out your emptiness and fills you full comes in a rough cross. And the glorious, captivating treasure that belongs to Christ. The treasure that can't ever dissatisfy or disappoint or bore Him. The treasure that belongs to Christ is His cross in you. That's the gospel. Your treasure is Jesus on the cross and His pearl is His cross in you. So if Jesus has done all this, why Why did we come in here this morning feeling like our pockets and our hearts and our lives are so empty? Oh, because we're skilled at misappraising things. We're skilled at taking our trinkets and calling them treasures. And the riches of Jesus seem to us like flea market prizes. But in both of the parables... The man and the merchant walk away from less to be endowed with infinitely more. And for the man especially, selling everything he had, everything he thought he would need, everything he'd ever lived on, everything he had ever overvalued and overpriced. And that's all you have to do, by the way, to have the treasure of Jesus, is lose it all. Your guilt, your self-loathing, your self-punishment, your deepest regrets, your shame, your sorrows, your griefs. Some of us love holding on to these things. There is a twisted comfort in pitying ourselves over these things. Even though finding comfort in brokenness falls far short of the love of Christ. You have to get rid of your pride and your arrogance and your ambition and your envy and your jealousy and your demand for success. You have to get rid of your anger and your fear and your despair and your doubt and your wish dreams and fantasies of the good life and your midlife crisis. Your your self-idolatry, your self-worship, the way you demand other people to see you. You have to get rid of your idea of the perfect body or a clean bill of health or a storybook marriage or well-trained children who are always perfectly behaved in convenient relationships that cause no drama or conflict or tension, but there isn't any ministry in them either. You have to get rid of being in the in crowd and solving all the world's problems by some political fever, some political salvation. None of these things come from the cross. You can have all of them 
any of them, and not a single one of them demanded that a Savior hang on a cross for you to have them. They're all in their own ways avoidances of the cross. They're all in their own ways ways of getting around the cross. And on the other hand, sitting on top of the treasure that Christ sought worth, leaving heaven to give to you, the treasure that Jesus saw it worth leaving heaven to give to himself, sitting on top of a pile like that, what else could ever satisfy you? Could these other things ever bring you peace or forgiveness or fearless hearts or renewed minds or righteous boldness or deeper desires that aren't fickle and they don't fade away? If they could deliver, would Jesus have buried his treasure under your nose? And would the man in the parable have been described as selling off all he had in great joy to have this treasure? And that's what we don't believe. We don't believe that losing all we've ever known for all Jesus has ever wanted to give to us is true joy. But it's time to pile up everything you've ever thought you would need everything you've ever thought would keep you and care for you. It's time to pile all of those things up on the curbside and put price tags on them, meaning you start to value those things appropriately, accurately, and you value those things as far, far less than what Jesus wants to plant and grow and build in you. But These two parables give us a new appraisal. And here's what they leave us with. What is cross-shaped is treasure. And what is not shaped like the cross is junk. A couple nights ago after dinner, Jennifer and I were walking around the block. The sun had gone down, the heat had burned away, mostly. And as we were walking, Jennifer said, I've realized that Jesus is not my treasure. The love of Jesus does not put a spring in my step and make my heart sing and put a smile on my face. These other things do. And she started listing all the cheap things that she counts as priceless. Now, you're not supposed to talk like that. You're not supposed to be honest like that. You're not supposed to say things like that. But just by saying it, Jennifer was pricing all that she owned. And she was finding that it wasn't worth what she thought. And she was moving it out to the curb and beginning to sell off everything for an unburied treasure. And you don't have to walk out of here this morning the way you walked in. With empty, empty pockets, empty hearts, empty lives. You can walk out knowing that the kingdom, the treasure, is shaped like a cross. If you have ears to hear. And if you believe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
I love trinkets, Jesus. Baubles with no value, and I love to call them priceless. And I love to tell myself that I can't live without them. These are the things that fill my life with meaning and purpose. These are the things that give to me value and promise love and care and keeping. And none of these things required the Savior to put himself on a cross. None of these things are the treasures of heaven. Clinging to all of them, I'm poor. Turning them all loose and selling them off is meaningless and worthless. And clinging to your cross to have sin put to death and new graces and righteousness brought to life. Becoming something I could never become on my own. But something that Jesus from before the dawn of time was determined to make of me. That's the treasure. So enjoy, allow us to sell off all that we have. To have what you would give to us. Let our treasure be your sacrifice on the cross and let us marvel at your pearl, your cross, doing its work in us. And for all this, we'll give you thanks. We ask it in your name.